Oh, I saw Zulu's account got banned. I was, I was oh, yeah, looking Twitter. through all the things that I met, missed when I went dark, and that's hilarious. You know, what's funny is I just opened up my YouTube to practice some songs the other day, and then one of the first things that gets recommended to me is Zulu's page because he's still on YouTube. And I opened up a tab of the video that got recommended. I just haven't watched it yet, but it's called Prudhone and his queers. And I don't, and it's only like two and a half minutes long. So I have no idea what he's, but I just, I haven't taken the time to sit there and watch fucking liquid Zulu's face. So. Oh, okay. <sighs> I can put it in the are, chat. Are you guys still able to hear me? Yeah, that's actually worse somehow. Uh, so what do you got now? What do you got? What are you using now? Wait. Oh, he's gone. Yep. <laughs> Jaren, check the, uh, the text chat. Oh my god. I can stream it if you want to watch it real quick while we're getting David set up. <laughs> yeah, why, let's just let's just rage it up here. Alright, hold on one second. Oh my god. Let's see if that works. Are you able to see it at least? Oh yeah, I can see it. Alright. Thus Prudon and his qu Oh, is this just a blooper? <laughs> oh, that's fine then. <laughs> well, he said a funny word, didn't he? What's he got a a a uh, mate? <laughs> 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 it's so not as funny as you think it is, dude. <laughs> really? All right, like two minutes of just. <laughs> what the hell is this? All right. <laughs> Thus, Prudon and his peers. Can... <laughs> <laughs> See, I don't have the ego to record oh. YouTube videos of just myself and then do editing of those like he must be doing, which I didn't realize that's what he's doing. I don't, I'm just not that into myself. Yeah, this oh. is a very specific kind of wankery. <laughs> Fuck me. No one does, but <laughs> no one will. <laughs> All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Turn Up This Podcast. I'm Mike, he, him. And tonight I'm here with Jaron, he, him. And the guest tonight is David, he, him. How's it going, David? Hi, how's it going? Good to meet you. Good to see you as well. So uh, tonight we're going to talk about narco spirituality. And that is your page on Instagram. And uh, if you want to like start off by plugging your social medias, and then uh, I'll have you just introduce yourself, because that's basically how I found you. Like, I just found the narco spirituality page on Instagram. I really liked your posts. And as weird as it is for me, the hardcore tanky to follow an anarcho anything page, I can't deny that you have good shit posts and you have a good sense of humor. So I was happy to shoot the shit with you and then invite you on the show to sort of make the case of anarcho spirituality and why that is something that we should uh, advocate for. But yeah, go ahead and uh, plug your social media and introduce yourself as much as you'd like. Sure. Yeah. The only social media that I really work with is Instagram. And um, as mentioned, you know, that's my uh, my home for shit posts and all things anarcho spirituality. I would encourage anyone that is interested in the conversation today to reach out to me there. Um, I'm always happy to, to talk more about these subjects, and I have a lot of resources also to provide to people. Um, if you have interest in these topics, I have a, a Google Drive with several hundred books on it. 
that you know are, are supportive of of learning on this stuff, and I'm happy to give recommendations or point people in whatever direction they want to go. Hell yeah, that's actually great. I mean, that's like what we try to do as well. We put together a huge library in our Discord, and I try to keep a whole database of resources to send people to when they ask like the obvious questions, like didn't communism kill millions? Doesn't everybody starve? Yeah, you get a lot of the obvious things. So, but I, I take it you're a spiritual person yourself. So I understand it and I could be wrong in this because it's not something that I look into, not being a spiritual or religious person, but the way I understand it, most leftist movements that have taken root and taken any kind of serious projects have been anti-religion, if not vehemently atheist, but just view religion as sort of unscientific or something that is a hindrance or just at least not necessary to a revolutionary leftist movement. But I take it you don't see it that way. And maybe you want to start with just a little more of your background of why you feel so spiritual or what got you into it. But yeah, and, and, and I do joke that like anarcho spirituality is kind of like a failed niche because, you know, the anarchists have no interest in spirituality and the spiritual people definitely don't want to hear about anarchism. So it's like, what am I even doing? <laughs> you know? Yeah, it does kind of seem like religion tends toward hierarchy, right? Yeah. And so, so just to be clear at the outset, I mean, not to be jumping into more of the theoretical stuff, but I'm probably just as anti-clerical, if not more anti-clerical than your average secular or atheistic leftist. I view most of the religious establishment as having destroyed what was the revolutionary potential of a lot of, you know, the great spiritual teachers. But, you know, with, with that said, we wanted to talk a little bit about um, my background and stuff. So, um, you know, I have a kind of interesting origin story. You know, I, I grew up in New Jersey, but uh, I uh, I always remember, you know, in terms of my spiritual background, I, I always remember looking at like the sky or looking down at the ground and digging in the dirt and, you know, kind of asking the big questions of why are we here? What What is this all about? You know, is there a God, these kinds of things? And like, I was raised in like a slightly semi-religious household, raised Jewish. Um, and I would, you know, I would try to pray and, and never got anything back. Not even a little bit, not even the littlest, tiniest bit of a whisper not a, a ripple up my spine, not anything. And so uh, thus began um, what was almost a lifetime, you know, up until about four years ago of pretty staunch atheism, you know, not because I didn't want to believe, just because I didn't have any basis to believe. So why should I? And so I kind of, for most of my life, probably as atheistic as anyone li listening to this podcast, and I kind of wrote religion off as a collective delusion, like, you know, people are just trying to explain things that they can't explain. One of my favorite arguments was like, if all religions claim to be the one true religion, and this is, of course, a dubious premise in and of itself, but if all religions claim to be the one true religion, then at most only one can be correct. And given their track record, it's probably none of them. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But so, so, you know, so I started off atheistic, also got into drugs pretty early on. You know, I was someone that always was always interested in kind of altering my consciousness and you know, exploring those realms and, you know, start getting into trouble pretty early on. But, you know, my parents were very open-minded. They let me read pretty much whatever I want. So in fourth or fifth grade, I'd gotten my hands on Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States and also oh, yeah. a Communist Manifesto and like some other miscellaneous leftist writings. And so very early on, the veil of reality was pulled up and the propaganda that I was being fed in school was revealed. And I very thoroughly disengaged from anything that was going on academically speaking. And so um, this just kind of fueled my delinquency. And I got into, you know, street punk and, you know, anarchist crux punk and this kind of stuff and got into anarchism very early on, 14, 15 years mm -hmm. old. And I was 
very much driven by anger. And the anger kind of burnt me out. You know, it didn't really serve a purpose. It was just anger that no one else saw things the way that I saw things that, you know, I was seeing at this mass global oppression and exploitation and everyone else are like, is like barbecuing on Sundays watching football. And, you know, I'm out protesting animal cruelty on the side of the highway with like a couple of other punks and, you know, everyone's driving by filling the parking lot of the mall that's right there, you know, to go buy whatever bullshit they're buying, you know. So this this intense disillusionment set in and I kind of burned myself out with all of that anger and I lost my political bent and just kind of descended into nihilism, essentially, and got involved in street crime, wound up you know, gang banging, selling drugs in the street. And um, by the time I was 18, I was arrested for drug distribution. 20 was arrested for distribution again. And when I turned 20, uh, and got the second charge, I had basically, I, I had enough evidence to conclude that I was probably more likely to spend my life in jail than to become Pablo Escobar. And so maybe drug dealing wasn't like a viable career option for me. So yeah. at that point, I went the full sellout route and decided to, well, you know, okay, so revolution clearly wasn't working for me. Just out and out nihilistic rebellion and criminality wasn't working for me. Maybe I should just try being a normal person. So. I went to college, still profoundly addicted to drugs, ended up doing very, very well, though, graduated at the top of my class and got a series of impressive corporate jobs at corporate law firms, hedge funds, these kinds of things. I was working in the financial sector in New York City. And eventually I go to law school. I go to law school at NYU and graduate getting a job at an elite New York corporate law firm in their leveraged finance department. So doing private equity buyouts and big structured finance transactions, like, you know, really kind of at the top of like where they tell you you should go if you're winning yeah. at life, basically. But also like the people we hate, like who are just ruining every, like private equity is the worst shit, dude. Like oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Guilty as charged. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I will own that completely. Yeah. Like, like I said, it was a complete sellout move, but like, yeah. you know, I, I didn't see anything changing. So I was kind of like burnt out from caring. I'd burnt out from you know, just being an out and out criminal. So like, all right, let me try and do this, this life thing the right way, you know? And yeah. so, so that, that's where it took me and not for nothing. I mean, the firm that I was in was very liberal so far as these kinds of enterprises are concerned. So like I did do some like interesting and worthwhile work. I, I mean, I still though, like they go from like being arrested for drug dealing to literally the top of the pyramid of what is it? Usury. Yeah, usury, but like I was trying to think of the or <laughs> the uh, what's the owl that everybody worships oh, the Moloch or something. Yeah, like you went to the top, you went to like that Illuminati eye that they see at the top of the period. Like you went there in like a very short oh, space yes, yes. for being in jail. So the, it is impressive, if not like morally bankrupt, but mm. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So, um, but th this is the place that society tells you, like, do this and be happy. You know, you, when you get to the point where you could walk out of your suburban home, drinking your coffee, wave to the neighbor and pick up the newspaper, do that whole like, I love Lucy 50 sitcom thing. Like that's the American dream, right? That's, that's right. where they tell you to go to be happy, to live your best life. And I was still profoundly addicted to drugs, completely broken. You know, there's no emptier feeling than to stand in the penthouse of your New York City apartment overlooking Times Square and realize that like you just spent 10 years and a couple hundred thousand dollars in student loan getting to a place that didn't make you any happier than where you were when you first set out on that path. You know, this is this is the myth of the American dream that I had essentially bought into hook, line and sinker 
And like, then had this like epiphany moment where I just kind of saw through the whole thing and was like, okay, so th this isn't actually it, <laughs> you know? But so my addiction intensifies and I'm working on this big deal. And, and, and as I was saying, like there was some worthwhile stuff in there. Like I, I had a hand in the Supreme Court case that legalized same-sex marriage nationwide. I worked on the American Bar Association amicus brief for that. I worked on a, a pretty interesting defense against deportation for a Dominican immigrant who the feds had used for information against the cartel on the promise of not deporting him after his sentence. And then we're trying to deport him and the cartel shot up his grandma's home during the pendency of the trial. Um, uh, There's some interesting stuff and like some worthwhile stuff and actually got in trouble for spending too much time on pro bono when I should have been billing to clients. But um, yeah, that was it. I was more attracted to the pro bono stuff than the finance stuff, but whatever, it is what it is. The sellout's a sellout, um, you know? So, so, so I end up working on this. $750 million aviation finance deal for American Airlines. Um, this takes several months to work on. I'm running it myself as a pretty young associate. And a couple of weeks into the deal, before the deal closed, I'm up for two or three nights preparing the closing documentation. And the night before the deal closes at 9 a.m., I go to sleep at three or four in the morning with five alarms set. And I oversleep all five of the alarms and miss the closing call in the morning. And that was the beginning of the end for me in this line of work. You know, that's that's the kind of level of fuck up that there's no recovering from, which, you know, even goes to say that even the people at the top are expendable. You know, the idea is like you have a company like American Airlines and the way that the financing documents are set up, if they, you know, if they announce a borrowing with the bank and they fail to close, then there's cross default provisions in the rest of their loan documentation. So, okay, so you're supposed to do something. So you didn't do that thing. So now all the lenders can default you on all of your financing and put you right back in bankruptcy. So basically this was me potentially putting American Airlines in the position to be bankrupt. And this is just kind of like an unforgivable. Yeah. yeah so you, I, I would call that praxis. <laughs> <laughs> David, let me ask you real quick. In the middle of that, just that at that last part there, something about your speaker changed. No, wait, now you got nothing. You know what that makes me think of, Jaron? Huh. Did you ever see the Rick and Morty episode when he gets all the demons and toxins removed from him and he puts them in like a separate Rick or a separate Morty and they like are fighting in like this nether region to themselves and then Morty becomes like a Wall Street trader and he's got like a hot girlfriend in like a, a house apartment because he like excised all his neuroses and everything. You know, that's a meme that's going around now too. It's like, oh, as soon as I uh, become self-actualized, as soon as I get rid of this drug habit and I sleep more and I get hydrated and everything, it's over for all you motherfuckers. And it's like, yeah, but would you, would you really like ascend to the top of, like I said, Moloch or would you still have morals and be like, no, I don't want to do that shit. I still would rather just work. I don't know. But regardless, oh. it's impressive. Let me see how you sound now, David. How are we doing now? I think that might be all right. It might be, you know what, it might be a little muted again, but it still works. I mean, we can at least hear what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. This, this speaker has switched off. Now it's back on, but... It's fine. I mean, it, it definitely is workable. So continue if you had some more left about your introduction, because we were just getting into how you uh, fuck up over at Goldman Sachs and AIG, and you caused the whole 08 <laughs> derivative crash as yourself, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, so basically, that, that's kind of the, the beginning of my phase out from that line of work. And interestingly, I, I was in such a psychologically unhealthy position. You know, I, I had basically done all of this stuff just to kind of please others, just to kind of make myself feel good and, and had basically built my sense of self 
out of my possessions and out of my accomplishments. You know, I had no intrinsic sense of self-worth. It was all like fight club shit. <laughs> like, look at what I did. Look at who I am. Um, you know, look at how lovable I am because I succeeded in my life and for all this stuff, you know? And so I was this incredibly obnoxious personality who would like, you know, be sure to tell you all about myself because like, that's how I knew that I had some values. If you were able to reflect back to me that I was someone who was worth being, whether that was through your envy or through your admiration, whatever it was, like, I'll, I'll take that so that I could feel good about myself, which I think is a lot of people at that tier of, of practice. I don't think that, you know, people don't tend to like go on those paths because they're like fully self-actualized, you know, in and of themselves. So, uh, so, so that's where I was. And so basically the bottom fell out under my sense of self. And I had like a couple of interviews at other comparable, like top tier law firms that didn't pan out. I, I was so rattled that like I flopped my interviews. I couldn't really get anything out. It was just a complete, complete time in my life. Um, yeah. and, um, yeah, so, so things just kind of spiraled and, you know, interestingly, I could have gone and worked at like a slightly less elite kind of firm for pretty much the exact same amount of money. But the fact that my identity was supported by the level of work that I was doing by being the best of the best, the top of the top, and that I could no longer sustain it, it was like the whole thing wasn't even worth it anymore. And I kind of dissent. Oh, we lost you again, David. It, it does kind of speak to the like, some of the intersectionality that I think we'll touch on a little bit later is, is like what you're describing is like the bullshit of the meritocratic system that we're sold, whether or not it's money or fiscal power or celebrity, whatever it happens to be, these things are superficial. And, and that doesn't mean that they don't have any value, but it does mean that it doesn't necessarily supply everything to you. And I think that we can see those open wounds, not only in workers' movements, but also, yeah, in, in spirituality. The workers' movements are the things that provide us with the base physical needs that we require, you know, housing, affordable food, water. But that doesn't answer bigger questions for humans. We're quirky little animals, and, and we need something more than that sometimes. And those things are intrinsic needs for us. But yeah, go ahead. I, I think that that's, that's a really good way to put it is you know, you hit the top of this pyramid and it still didn't really supply you something that you needed and were looking for. Yeah. Right. So, um, so yeah, so, you know, so, so I basically gave up on the, on the real person thing. I'd, I'd also lost a really important relationship at that particular time. There's a, a girl I was thinking that I was going to get married who was in deep psychosis and ended up stabbing me. So there's this whole, this whole tailspin that happened there. And, um, I ended up kind of just chucking it all and going back to the streets, back to selling drugs, back to what I had kind of always been doing, back to kind of full-blown nihilism. And the attitude at this point was like, well, I had tried to do the real person thing. It clearly didn't work out. So, you know, gave it the old college try. You know, I, I, it was it was worth a shot. I had a nice run at it. But, you know, obviously that wasn't for me because I blew it all up and uh, it didn't work out in the end. So, so, so again, you know, deep into the, the New York City underworld selling drugs. And now I'm just kind of going full bore because this is the best idea I've got and end up getting pretty big in the meth game in New York City and work my way up there and end up selling for the cartel. And holy shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I told you it's an interesting story. Yeah. It was, it was a dark world. And nah. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, nah. <laughs> and and methabol drugs. Well, I I wasn't buying directly off of the cartel themselves. I was dealing with their the first American hands to touch what they brought because the distributors themselves or the, the traffickers rather, they have like, you know, regular jobs and families and they don't really get hands on with this stuff. So this was the first person who like, you know, had the shovel with the drums of the drugs in storage lock. And so this guy was American, but it was, it was pretty much, you know, first go at this stuff when it was landing and um, was making more money than I was as a corporate lawyer selling drugs and things really spiraled out. I was getting targeted. You know, I, I wasn't really into the dark side of the business. I wasn't into the violence. I wasn't into the enforcement stuff. Like, I just want to party and have a good time and like make money and possibly kill myself while I do it. Like, no big worry, <laughs> you know, no big worry here. But, you know, but the, the streets aren't like that. So, you know, I became kind of a victim of, of some, you know, there are people who make their own money in the street. And then there are people who live off of the people who make their own money in the street. And so I, I was a make your own money guy. And that made me a target for people who were more street than I was, you know, but basically in the very end of this period before the kind of shit hit the fan with it, I started having some kind of spiritual experiences some kind of mystical variety experiences, which at that point I kind of thought were easy to write off because, well, you know, crystal meth, psychosis, smoking PCP, like, you know, whatever the case may be, that's easy enough to write off. But, um, so I, I end up catching, two trafficking cases and wind up jammed up in the Manhattan tombs, Rikers Island. I was uh, in the tombs twice and uh, sorry, three times Rikers Island twice. And I end up doing state prison time in, in New York on these drug charges. And after sobering up, you know, the spiritual experiences continued, you know, with no attendant signs of psychosis. Now it took me about two years into recovery to not write off to be completely kind of confident that there was no psychosis attached to this. And I know how a lot of people hearing this will, you know, how, how this is going to land because I know how it would land for me when I was an atheist was like, okay, no, no, still crazy. Yeah. Nothing, nothing else to see here. But uh, you know, it's a feature of spiritual awakening that it tends to find people who are in the most dire straits. There's this cliche that, you know, people find God in jail, find God in prison, but the research into spiritual experience shows that, you know, there are some practices that one can do to have spiritual awakening, and there are some life circumstances that might lead to it. And the practice that's most likely to lead to a spiritual experience is meditation. The life experience that's most likely to lead to spiritual experience is a complete crash and burn of your life, being at the end of the road, uh, cornered with no way out. And so this is the situation that people in jail tend to find themselves in. And this is actually the best predictor of genuine spiritual experience, according to the research into the area. But I'm now, you know, four years into recovery and have no signs of psychosis. But these experiences occasionally occur every couple of months or so. There might be, you know, just kind of a, a random kind of profound spiritual experience that has some kind of meaning and then a shift back. And there's you know, no other disturbances whatsoever. And so, you know, after some amount of time, you know, I was able to kind of put aside the the questions into my own sanity and kind of embrace it. And, you know, people will think whatever they think, but I, I just encourage people to at least allow me the interpretation that I offer to these experiences, because that's just kind of the nature of spiritual stuff. They can't be shared. A lot of them are hard to talk about, but it was life-changing for me. And so, so now spirituality is the absolute center of my life. I'm in a, a master's of theology program, I'm a yoga instructor. The first job 
So, so the, the way that I ended up using my prison time was essentially monastically. I was meditating four to eight hours a day. I settled primarily on Buddhism at that point as the tradition that resonated most with me as a recent atheist. And we could get into why that was in a few moments. But so I became a pretty serious Buddhist practitioner. And so, you know, I was meditating four to eight hours a day. My locker was full of books on Buddhism and other spiritual topics. And, you know, during our rec periods, I'd be out doing walking meditation out in the yard, you know, and use this time to really transform myself and to become someone that I never knew I had the potential to be. You know, th this is part of also the other support for the validity of these experiences is that my drug use through my life, I, I, I realized a lot of it was running from what I often call the, the kind of low frequency discontent, this sort of background lack of adequacy, or, you know, some people call it the, the emptiness or the void. There's kind of a, a sense that like, you know, a sense of missing out on something, but you don't know what you're missing, a sense of like, not quite being whole, but you're not sure if anything's actually absent. This kind of like sense of sort of like existential longing or inadequacy that pretty much all humans carry around with themselves. You know, there's various spiritual models, 12-step recovery being one of them, of which I'm not a huge fan, but um, that's one of them that says that this particular problem is a spiritual malady. This is a, a spiritual problem that needs a spiritual solution. And that's, in fact, what I found. This kind of feeling, this not quite being able to sit with myself, not quite being okay in my own skin, and like constantly running from that with drugs, that's been filled in and replaced with kind of like a vibrant sense of wholeness and completeness. And that itself is perhaps the best evidence to me of the, the validity of this experience and the value of spirituality is, you know, feeling complete, feeling plugged into something greater than myself, feeling a sense of connectivity and oneness and meaning and experience. Whereas before I felt nothing, saw nothing, saw, you know, nothing but random patterns in experience. Now I can see, you know, meaning behind and feel meaning with um, so, you know, that's what they call being spiritual. If that's crazy, that's crazy. But, you know, yeah. So, I mean, I had a dozen questions, but I mean, the first thing I was going to ask you, even though you literally said you cannot describe it, is like, what are these spiritual experiences like? I don't know. I mean, I have times where I just feel things intensely. Like I will think about something that seems like a large thing to me, like the future of myself and my children or people that I've known in my life and since lost and the fact that so much of what they did is going to be completely lost to time. Any kind of thing that is hugely impactful to me in my life and I will think about that for just a little longer than my consciousness normally allows me to and that can be a heavy experience and I don't know it doesn't take me into exactly another mind state but it may affect me for quite a while like some kind of part of the human experience will just affect me seemingly out of nowhere. And I wonder if it's anything like that. Do you feel like you get some kind of, I don't know, emotional experience? Or is it even like a, as someone who's experienced with drugs? I mean, is it like a trip? Is it like an out of mind and body experience? I know you said you cannot describe it, but could you try for, for lay people? Yeah, if anyone's familiar with, you know, Kundalini awakening in the yogic traditions, stuff on, on that bandwidth in terms of vortex of energy spiraling up my spine, kind of eyes rolling back kind mm -hmm. of stuff, intense tingles or electricity at the crown of the head, you know, sometimes associated with like visuals, there's been kind of channeling experiences where I have a guru, which is another hugely misunderstood term. You know, a guru is not, you know, someone who comes to America to teach rich white blonde women in Hollywood how to get nice butts with yoga. 
a guru is not a teacher. A guru is themselves the path. A guru is the way. So these are kind of fully realized beings who are still sort of around to help people in their own spiritual work. When Jesus says, you get through the Father through me, that's the kind of thing he's talking about, that he acts as a doorway to the larger divinity. And within the Hindu tradition, which is one of the traditions I work with, there's a modern day saint who died about 45 years ago, who kind of overtook me while I was driving home from work one day and had a conversation with me through my own mouth. So, um, you know, so these are the kind of experiences that I think I needed to have some kind of belief, because if it was sort of like what you're describing in terms of like a tickle of maybe some sort of higher meaning, I would be like, oh, that's a tickle of something. I don't really know what to do with it, which it sounds like is kind of your response to it. So, you know, for, for me, like, you know, spirituality has completely overtaken my path from someone who felt nothing spiritual, who had no connection whatsoever, who couldn't tap in whatsoever to any of these kinds of things. Suddenly that's changed. Suddenly that's opened. And so now this is the center of my life. This is what I teach. I, I work at an inpatient drug and alcohol rehab where I teach spirituality full time in this massive facility that has 230 beds, eight different communities and stuff. And so I've kind of found myself in this position which feels very fortuitous, very kind of divinely ordained because I spent all this time in prison working on myself and learning all of this stuff. And two weeks before I paroled, I remember sitting in visitation with my mom and she said like, well, what are you going to do when you get out of here? Like, you're this spiritual guy now, like, what, what are you going to do? And I was like, well, you know, I, I know that I'm going to need to get a parole job, like construction or something like that. But what I'd really love to do is teach spirituality. But who's going to hire an ex-corporate lawyer, drug dealing convict to teach Buddhism and meditation. And that, in fact, is the first job that I got after I left prison. It's like the thing that I didn't feel worthy enough to ask for was it now feels like mm -hmm. what I was preparing to do. And so, you know, I, I started out as an entry level, just a floor tech doing the basic operational stuff in an entry level position at this rehab. And occasionally therapists wouldn't show up to run their groups. So I'd have to fill in and I'd talk about Buddhism. I wouldn't talk about the 12 steps. I don't know anything about the 12 steps, really. Buddhism is, you know, what helped me. And so this started really resonating with people and they'd tell people on other units. And then those people would go to their therapist and say, hey, how come we're not learning Buddhism? Like that stuff's really cool. And this went on for like maybe a year. And eventually they kind of created a new position just for me to do what I was doing on the strength of how much it resonated with patients. And so they basically just said, yeah, come up with your own program, whatever you've been doing, make a month long program out of it, eight sessions, you'll do this session twice, you know, you'll you'll have each floor twice a week for eight floors. And, you know, since then, I've been given permission to be one on one with patients. So this is what I do. I'm not a clinician, but I teach spirituality, I teach various perspectives on spirituality, I tend to focus on people who have severe religious trauma and have aversions to spirituality or spirituality for atheists or agnostics to try and help that piece of recovery makes sense for people who maybe come in with a pretty strong aversion, which is honestly probably most addicts. <laughs> yeah, I, this is, and I'll be the first one to, to look at like the old anarchist authors, like, you know, back in and point out where he was being a total asshole. But this is also a point where I've, I've broken with Marx quite a bit is, you know, I, I don't really perceive religion and belief to be something that's deviant from social progress. I definitely understand that there are points at which that does occur. But I think that like anecdotally, 
your story is a really good example of a, a person who had all of their material conditions met vis-a-vis -vis this Wall Street job, these corporate jobs, these you know law firm jobs. You weren't at a loss for housing or water or food or anything like that. Quite the contrary. But there was still something that called to you and that you needed as part of your human condition, which would be spirituality. I could make the same comparison with a friend of mine who lost his brother in one of these shitty U.S. wars in Iraq. And he is, is not religious per se. He doesn't go to church, but he was raised Catholic, and he still clings on to bits of that Catholicism because he wants to think somewhere in his mind that he'll see his brother again. And I, I think that that's very beautiful. He's, he's not the kind of Catholic that you would necessarily think is Catholic, but he has this spirituality about him because he wants to know that he will see his brother. And there's millions and millions and millions of anecdotal personal cases like this where we can't expect material conditions to fill in those gaps. Um, and I also find it interesting that I'm also Jewish. There's something to be said here for that, which is that, you know, I'm personally very agnostic. I'm like to the far end of agnosticism. But the identity of being Jewish, the religion of being Jewish, the culture and traditions of being Jewish, these are things that I can't shed. I was raised in them. And more to the point, anyone that wants to oppress a Jew, I'm a Jew no matter what. You know, there, there are cultural components of philosophy and belief and these huge underpinning staples that have lasted the entire 200,000 years of human history that we can't ignore with this and that I do think have to be considered in the idea of like proletarian revolution. Like I can't imagine getting the working right in America to somehow go left if I tell them that they can't bring their fucking God with it. It's just not mm. going to happen. So that's a really important point because I view religion and spirituality as one of the key ideological battlegrounds of the revolution that the left has pretty much forsaken because we've actually swallowed what we've been told about religion by the right and kind of failed to apply the same sort of materialist analysis to why is religion the way that it is and where did it actually start from? You know, how, how I kind of got back into anarchism was, so first of all, a lot of what I was learning in Buddhism about Buddhist practice and kind of self-regulation and uh, approaches to anger was that I was getting a lot of tools that would have been very useful back when I was a really angry 14 and 15 year old anarchist street punk that didn't know what to do with my anger, that didn't know how to channel that effectively or work with it and ended up fizzling out instead. And so coming back to radical politics, I'm now equipped to deal with the massive weight of these issues and of the oppression that we expose ourselves to in the media that we consume and the theory that we read and the people we associate with and the causes that we invest our time in. If we are not equipped to do that psychological self-care, that spiritual hygiene, you could very easily wind up in the same trap that I did. And so, so that is kind of the beginning of a first answer to your why should the left care about spirituality? Because I mean, I'm not making the claim that this is the only place to get it. You could go to therapy, you could do these kinds of things, but but these are some time-tested sets of tools that people have been using for thousands of years to master themselves. And so in the same way that like, you know, anger is good to the 
in extent that it is initiatory. It, it drives the desire for change, but it's not necessarily the best engine to keep that running. You know, to the in, in the same sort of way that martial artists don't fight from anger and specifically reject the use of anger in their craft because it's not a tactical or strategic way to approach their conflict. Um, the same can be said of you know revolutionary praxis. You kind of want a cool head about things. You don't want to be lured into kind of stupid situations because you're just angry about shit. You know, the next point was that the more I was learning about spirituality, the more I was starting to feel like anarchism was actually the logical endpoint. So I didn't come back to anarchism on mm -hmm. my own. I actually found it as derivative from the spirituality that I was studying. And so there's actually strains of anarchist thought in every one of the world's religious traditions. There's revolutionary thought in every religious tradition. And, you know, and there's the same kind of class struggles and dynamics that you see in other areas of society. Religion is not inherently an opiate of the masses in the same way that the media is not inherently just a tool of propaganda. The question is, whose hand is it in? Who's controlling the narrative? Right. That's a very good point. I actually had a question about that. It's what I was thinking of recently. And I mentioned it before we started recording, but it's like, I think that religion absolutely can be something that is useful for revolutionary energy. And another of my favorite podcasts, Matt Crispin on his Kush blog, he is always talking about how you kind of need religion or something akin to it to get people to take part in a mass movement that will be an upheaval to their society, especially if they can't picture what it's going to look like after they've done that because you know if you start if you start to just destroy shit it's a, a huge moment of uncertainty but i think especially here in america there's a reason why religion is typically white nationalist is typically far right as opposed to you know liberation theology that takes place mostly in south america central america where they have a version of christianity or catholicism even that uh is very left-leaning is very much like the actual Jesus' messages of taking care of everyone and what we would consider socialism or communism. But, uh, I mean, what's your take on how we'd possibly sway people in the direction of liberation theology as opposed to fascist theology? Yeah, well, so, I mean, what, what we actually see, so, I mean, the, the fascist right-winger, you know, Christian uh, white nationalists are obviously the, the really vocal people right now. But what the research shows is that there's, Within this country, about 20% would give Christianity a construction that would be something that I would say sign off on, maybe a more liberation theology kind of approach or a Jesus of the oppressed and the poor um, kind of angle. Then 20% is going to be the kind of opposite extreme. And then you have roughly 60% in the middle who are kind of undecided, don't really know. Maybe the version of Christianity they know is just depolitical, you know, so there's a lot of people in the middle. And so this is why I say that, um, you know, I, are we going to get the white nationalists over to Christian anarchism? Mm, probably not. But I think that there's a huge swath of people that could potentially be convinced with, you know, clear argumentation. That's why I think that it's important to have people on the left who can speak this language, because there's a lot of people within that 60% for whom, you know, their religion is very important. And Potentially, they could be swayed with some, you know, with some appropriate theology. Yeah, I guess it would be nice if there were some, what do you call them, like mega church people. Like, uh, who's the guy that everybody fucking hates because he didn't open his uh, doors? 
Joel Austin. Yeah. Well, like, where's the fucking leftist Joel Austin? Like, why don't they exist? Like, that, that's that's exactly why I'm here. You know, is 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 hoping to at least you know encourage that kind of messaging. You know, there's this whole separate issue of the way that kind of capitalism has gotten its tendrils into spirituality, and that's like a whole another separate issue with the prosperity gospel. This spiritualized capitalism is like literally the most cringe thing I could possibly think of, and it's not just in Christianity too. It's to some extent in Buddhism, it's a big part of kind of new age spiritual philosophy, if you could call it that law of attraction kind of stuff. The idea that like what it means to be spiritual is to, you know, seek the satisfaction of material desires. And you do that by having a single minded focus on like getting material shit or like tithing to your church or whatever. Like this shit is so cringe. There's no precedent for it in like any of the original texts or teachings. It's just a uniquely American perversion of you know of true spirituality part of what you're describing though is like obviously you know we we live in the west so that's primarily what our focus is as it should be because it's a direct threat to a lot of us but you know you could look at at burma and the theravada buddhist majority there who are a direct threat to a lot of the indigenous muslims that are there you could look at the the shia muslims uh in charge of iran and the direct threat that they have from their quote religious interpretation of islam to some of the citizens there. The function of religion through government as a means of action, it's not isolated to a particular religion because then we're talking about power dynamics. We're not talking about religion. We're talking about power dynamics. I could pick any religion, major religion in the world and find a case study of why it's bad, but that doesn't really touch on what the religion is. And I think that a lot of Marxists even understand this at a certain level because Marxists are about decolonization. They are about anti-imperialism. And let's say that we could grant land back to Native Americans and they wanted to practice their native religions on this land. Would any modern Marxist deny them this? Probably not. Probably not, because that's in the interest of their independence. So it's not religion that should be opposed. It's the, the power dynamics of religion usurping state. That's what should be opposed. As far as the freedom to believe and to practice, there's no issue there. I, I again, I referenced that like every single Marxist that I talked to, a modern Marxist, not these people from the 1800s, every single modern Marxist that I know would not contest that Native Americans should be able to practice their own internal religions because it's part of land back. It's part of decolonization. We can grant this to anyone in any corner of the world. That's not the issue. The issue is when someone takes their religion, says that it commands this one thing, gets into a position of state-sponsored power, and then uses the state-sponsored power to enact something derogatory. That's the issue. And that's an examination, once again, of power dynamics, not of religion. I could just as easily come up with some idea that says like, I don't know, uh, being gay spreads COVID. And I could convince tons of people online that that's true somehow. And it would circulate just as fast as if I'd taken a religious angle. These are power dynamics, not religion, which I think is a really big distinction. And it is funny to me because, and then I'll shut up about it, but like even hardline off left folks who I talk to frequently would concede that like, yeah, indigenous people should have their own belief systems. And it's it's because it's been something that is owed to them because of their culture. I also agree with this point. Um, and I think that that should be extended to everyone. 
but I don't know if there's any additional thoughts on that. You know, I agree with you wholeheartedly about pretty much all of that. You know, that's really the point is that when, you know, people who are in charge of interpreting the sacred text, quote unquote, always seem to find the justification for their own authority and claims to power within those texts is really quite a strange thing. And when they can merge with government, they seem to often take that route because it's cozy, it's easy. There's often concessions that are made by institutional religion when it comes to dealing with whoever is in power. There's no real exceptions to this, I don't think, across the traditions. But, you know, take, like you said, the, the genocide of the Muslims in Burma. You won't find a single thing in any of the voluminous Buddhist canons of any of the Buddhist sects that will in any way condone that kind of behavior, right? Correct. Not whatsoever. As a matter of fact, the entire tradition is dedicated. The most fundamental teachings are dedicated to non-harming. The, the precepts, there's five precepts for lay Buddhists. The most basic moral precepts are include not killing, right? And according to Buddhism, one of the absolute roots of suffering is its self-hatred in the human heart and all of the suffering that proliferates when people act on it. So it's the same thing of the rest of the traditions. You won't find most of what the Catholic Church or many Christian churches do justified in any traditional Christian text. An interesting point of fact about this particular issue is, you know, so, so before Jesus began his ministry, he goes to the wilderness, right, to go and meditate or what have you. And so there's this scene in the Gospels where uh, it's, it's in Matthew and Luke, where he has these temptations in the wilderness, where the devil comes and offers him three different things. And one of those temptations, I think it's the, the third temptation in Matthew, the second in Luke, it, it says the devil shows him the kingdoms of the world and offers them to him. If only Jesus would bow and worship him. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. I, I only will you know, worship the one true God. So what this says from, you know, kind of a leftist perspective is that the kingdoms of the world belong to the devil, that if you want to exercise political power, or political authority, you are essentially a devil worshiper. And this is something that Jesus rejected. So, so explicitly in the gospel, Jesus says, no, I don't want your kingdom, Satan, right? That's your purview. And so in so doing, he's also rejecting the notion of, you know, his ministry, his movement being from the top down through political control. His was a grassroots organization among the peasantry in the countryside of Galilee. So interestingly, though, you know, so this temptation that Jesus refuses is the exact same temptation that Constantine offers what will become the Roman Catholic Church 300 years after Jesus's death. You know, so Jesus's movement, which was revolutionary at the time, spread like wildfire and became a true threat. They were creating alternate societies from within Rome. The, the Christians at that time, they were pleased to be martyred because Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. And mind you, you know, what we've turned take up your cross into, you know, to deal with disease or loneliness or whatever parts of the human tribulations, to take up your cross in Jesus's day meant you were a political subversive, you were a revolutionary, and Rome was going to put you to death for your revolutionary act. You know, the cross was reserved for upstart slaves and for revolutionary subversives. So that's what Jesus was crucified for. And that's what it meant. Take up your cross and follow me. Follow me to oppose the unjust power that's ruling over 
all of these people that's wringing the people dry, exploiting everyone. And so, you know, this was a popular mass movement and Constantine decided to unify the empire by becoming Christian. And so the Romans didn't need to change anything because Christianity did all the changing for them. And it just became, you know, Jesus, who was turning the kingdom upside down, became a lapdog for the Romans. And the church in the days of Constantine accepted the very same temptation that Jesus refused. And since then, pretty much the rest has been downhill. The authentic message of Jesus was completely perverted in its adoption by Rome. And it's basically been downhill ever since. It's become a, a new form of Roman imperial theology, whereas before it was in complete opposition to it. I mean, the, the terms like the son of God, the savior of the world, you know, God in the flesh, God made man. These were all terms that belonged to Caesar, king of the Jews. In the beginning of the Gospels of Matt and Luke, where it starts out, you know, some, some wise men came asking like, yo, bro, is the king of the Jews born over here? The king of the Jews was a title that belonged to Herod, right? This is high treason to suggest that some Jewish peasant is in fact, you know, a competitor for the throne of the Roman Senate appointed governor. You know, this is stealing from Roman imperial theology. Roman imperial theology said that Caesar was the son of God who unified the world and brought world peace. The original gospel was the gospel of Caesar, the good news of peace in the world through Roman conquest, right? And all of these terms were appropriated by the gospel writers so that the listeners would know that what Jesus's message was, was in stark opposition to and challenged the Roman imperial order. It was a direct response to Roman imperial theology and Rome absorbed it. They took it on. It was, a, you know, it was a threat and the church capitulated and it's been downhill ever since. You know, one could say that the devil got what he wanted. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, that is incredible. Like, I can only imagine how many far right nuts have run with the idea that all government is the spawn of Satan from that very parable that you told. Because now that you said that, I remember hearing that story as a child, like somebody saying to Jesus, like, all the kingdoms of the world can be yours if you just choose the devil. And I never flipped that on its head like you did, like saying that that means that all governments are already under his control for him to be able to offer them to begin with. And I think that that actually is very present in like a lot of what the right wing religious nuts say is that everyone in power are literal devil worshipers. And they take it the childish way, which is to say that these people are literally meeting up in cults and sacrificing children or doing whatever crazy shit that they're doing because they're not understanding what the fucking definition of subtext even is. Like there's metaphor, like they don't understand that that is a thing that you can do in writing is just write <laughs> metaphor. Or that maybe you should take religion that way. But like, I don't think that makes it any less powerful, even if you take it as metaphor, because if these people are worshiping just what we consider a force that is the devil, I would call it anti-humanity. If you want to be ridiculous about it, you call it anti-utilitarianism, whatever. It's just the opposite of what is good for everyone, because you are choosing consciously a system that only benefits a select few in the hopes that you will individually be one of them in this short lifetime, as opposed to choosing to use your time and your energy to build something that is beneficial for everyone and will sustain itself long term. It's just you would have to be sociopathic, like something is wrong with you at your core. And I would just because, again, I'm not religious, I would just always say that they have something wrong with their brains, like maybe it's a chemical imbalance. Maybe they just were traumatized in some way that makes them want to dominate other people as opposed to just building a community system. But yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a conflict there. You know what I mean? I think you could take it the religious way and say that these people worship this 
force that we would recognize as the evil as opposed to the good path. But Jaron, you had something. So, well, I mean, first off, I'll go into like the uniquely American bit after my first point, but you're, you're assuming people will understand subtext when they don't even understand that like the subtext of Jesus's birth in late December corresponds with like the sun literally coming back and having longer days, which it was always a parable. You can see the same parable with like Amaterasu in Japanese culture, Dionysus, I think Horus, uh, Zarathustra in Iranian mythology. I mean, there's a shitload of gods that were born around December 25th is my point. And it was always meant to symbolize that the sun is coming back. It it was nothing more than just sort of a, a keynote for a calendar and a bunch of fucking cultures did it. So looking for like people understanding parables uh, when even just like the most basic parable for the American Christian is lost. Unfortunately, it's going to be hard to get them back on that particular train. But I think that there is something notable about American Christianity in particular, um, despite me having pointed out a bunch of different religions, utilizing power dynamics to a poor degree. But, you know, if, if we examine like King Henry VIII's split from the Catholic Church and the resulting Protestantism and Puritanical Christianity that resulted from that. These were types of Christianity that insisted on a type of predestined divine right. So these were types of Christianity wherein like you will be poor, you will suffer, and that is God's choice for you. And you should use your time, use your husbandry of time in a certain way, because that's what God wants for you. And if the mayor has more money than you, it's because God wanted the mayor to have more money than you. And he earned it just through something that he did before he was here. He was predestined for that wealth. He earned it. That mentality morphed into capitalism. It did. It created this idea that like, well, Elon Musk has all this money because he was just that smart. He was destined for it. And the reason that I'm focusing on this type of American Christianity the most is because this is what has defined the global model of capitalism. We can't say the same for like a Theravada Buddhist majority in Burma, but we can say this, that Henry VIII split from the Catholic Church saying that like, I have the divine right, uh, not them, and then the resulting puritanical offsprings that well, then I have the divine right. I have the divine right. I have the right to own anything that I can possibly get under my belt. But also everyone else was predestined for whatever they managed to take. So it's this this strange sort of dual understanding of worth, meritocracy, and right. But I think that like, kind of in contrast to what I've said before, like, I would be curious to get a group discussion on this. I very much respect anyone's right to believe whatever they wish. However, what is to be done materially when a religious group takes on such power that they start oppressing others? Because then we must destroy them. I mean, you know what I'm going to say. but <laughs> I know what you're going to say, but and this is something that plagues me personally because I have mixed feelings. Like, you know, on one hand, I do believe that there's material benefit to religion. And then on the other hand, I do believe that when it becomes a threat to others, it has to be burned and salted where it once stood. I would say re-educated out of ideally, <laughs> right? Like you I like just how have... I'm more off about this than you are. 
No, that's still possible. Like, I think even if you have somebody who's religious, but they take it in that wrong direction, you could make the case that they are more salvageable because they have some kind of religious bent, and maybe they just took a wrong turn somewhere, and you could bring them back to the positive side of that religion. You know what I mean? Like, there's got to be okay. a way you can yeah. do that. And so, I mean, but I always, ideally, I would always advocate for re-education. It's like, that's always the more nuanced and real-life take as opposed to what I'm going to say on the fucking meme page, right? It's like, ideally, you want people to convert. You want people to stop being homophobes and everything. You want people to just become better people and not fucking be dicks to everyone else and use authority against, like, that's what you want. You want people to rehabilitate. And then if they can't, then of course, then we bring out the wall and we bring out all the memes and all the fun stuff and the barber pit and everything. Like, yeah, we have that solution too, but we don't, we don't want to get there. What do, what do you think, David? <laughs> well, I think that the proper role for religious institution or religious authority is the type of authority that's permissible within anarchism. You know, th this is authority as in someone who has some sort of special knowledge or expertise who is capable of sharing that, someone who maybe is more studied in the particular subject matter or has greater spiritual attainment or connection and has something of value to share with others who are on the same path. This is more of a, a guide. And I, I think this is the appropriate role for, you know, for religious quote unquote authority is in the sense of, you know, those with more to offer on the subject. I don't think that they should be in a role of setting policy or being part of sort of the governing structure, unless their ideologies are aligned, which they very well can be. If you take Jesus's teachings on their face, I think you get to anarchism, you know, there, and there's, there's rich strands within Christian thought of Christian anarchism that understand things exactly this way. I mean, there's even several places in the Bible where there are commandments to be anarchists. I mean, just one, for example, in, in Ephesians, Paul says, Christians don't wrestle against flesh and blood against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world. And th this is to your point about these fanatics who heard about the third temptation, were like, oh, these people are devil worshipers. The problem isn't the people, it's the institution itself. You have to read that line in light of Jesus's command to love and forgive. So what we go to war against is not the people themselves, it's not flesh and blood like this line says, it's against the rulers, against the powers, against the principalities. The principalities referred specifically to like the spirit of the institution, what's behind it kind of animating it, the system of oppression itself. This word ruler in this letter is the Greek word archi, the same word that anarchism defines itself as a negation against. So this is Paul saying, you are to be anarchists, you are against the rulers of this world. So there's an express command to be anarchists. It's literal, <laughs> you know? So you know, that's kind of the antidote to these people who are like, oh, well, we got to kill them because they're devil worships or whatever. No, you have to read that in context with the rest of the teachings. We're fighting systems of oppression, but you still need to forgive. You still need to love. The aim is always to bring people into the fold through distributive justice, through fairness, through compassion. That was really the crux of Jesus's message was that the heart of compassion had been lost in rigorous and kind of legalistic understandings of the Jewish tradition. And his whole point was that y'all lost the heart of it. Y'all really lost the plot line here. You know, and I think that I would make the same argument about the white supremacists. Yeah, I think that that's pretty much what I agree with as well. It's like, ideally bring them back. But I mean, I don't know. It's all outside to me because I just don't feel the religious connection myself. But I think even like my off-left vision 
still would tolerate religion as long as it doesn't become harmful, as long as it doesn't get to that point where they start oppressing other people. Because I don't see anything inherently harmful about religion, even if it is like unscientific, as our comrade South Hill said on previous episode. But yeah, uh, so what we're typically used to for religions in the West are very faith based, are very much based on like what's evolved as church dogma. This is the word of God. It's what we tell you. And your job is to believe that. And that's very, you know, that's very much not the flavor that I'm interested in. Buddhism has a completely opposite approach. Buddhism is anti-dogmatism. The Buddha said his teachings are ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself, investigate these truths for yourself. And so uh, I would encourage anyone that feels that religion is unscientific to investigate some of the Eastern traditions because they're not concerned with telling people what to think. They're more interested in giving people certain experiences and then interpreting those experiences or certain objectives for people to achieve. And so the interesting thing here and why a lot of the Eastern traditions tend to resonate better with people who feel some type of way about spirituality is because they don't come with this kind of heavy handed approach of like, you believe this, you believe that. They're investigative and it's serious inner work. And, and I just wanted to kind of tie this other thread in about kind of the use of spirituality with the left. These are ways to build resilience and, you know, and, and to work on ourselves. I know so many women who have been victims of sexual assault in anarchist spaces. You know, if we haven't done the work on ourselves, we aren't worthy of a revolution. You know, we're just going to fuck it up again, to be completely honest. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh has a beautiful line that I'm probably going to butcher in paraphrasing. But he, he basically says, we could fly all of the weapons to the moon tomorrow. But if you look deeply into those weapons, you will see your own mind reflected back, all of the hatred and the fear of humanity. And unless you do something to root that out, sooner or later, we will make new weapons. This is another one of my core premises of anarcho-spirituality, that, that the revolution has to start first and foremost within, because what we see without, everything that we see that is not part of the natural world is a reflection of the quality of human hearts and minds. And unless we do the work of rooting out the hatred and the greed that lies latent in every human being, we will create new oppressive systems. We won't be able to deal kindly with each other. If we are working on ourselves seriously in the way that the spiritual traditions support people and ask people to do and have the tools to do, we might just have some, some hope. Of, of a revolutionary society. Yeah, that's really what anarcho-spirituality means to me. I like that. I mean, it sounds good. I just think that even while you're describing it, I just imagine like when you say we need to root it out and eliminate it, it's like, that sounds off to me just to begin with. But it also just seems to me that there's never the final ending point. Like you're never done. You have to devise a system that deals with it as it crops up because it will always whether it's just something that goes wrong with an individual or just arises in a group somehow, you have to devise a system that takes it into account to, to do that. And maybe that is what you're describing with anarcho-spirituality. But before I uh, have you clarified, what would you have, Jaron? Well, you just sort of touched on something that I've been mulling about. And it's actually part of why I break from a lot of anarchists, too, is all these isms refer to an end goal. They refer to like a zero point of perfect society where we don't have to change anything any longer. And it's because human beings, I mean, we want to see beginnings and ends. We want to see things wrapped up with a neat little bow. And we would like to imagine that there is a society that is just so perfect that we can structure it. And that's 
and that's the Francis Fukuyama. That's the end of history. Yeah, you know. And I fucking hate that. I fucking it work that hate way. that. It's fucking lazy. It's lazy. And like anarchists do it, Marxists do it, capitalists do it. And if I'm putting you in the same category as capitalists, you're fucking up. Like there, <laughs> there is no endpoint to any of this. It should always be mutating. And to think that like, again, human beings have been around for 200,000 years, 200,000 years. We think that Jesus's birth was a long time ago, 2000 years ago. Multiply that by a hundred thousand. That's how long our species has been around. If we haven't figured out the perfect fucking combination by this point, maybe there isn't one. Maybe it has to keep evolving. And I do think that that like, if we can only view things through, through science and materialism and hard facts, I think that those are super valuable. But they also lead us to this conclusion that, like, if we, you know, always have two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, it's going to be water. It, it leads us to these same processes that are, are inherent to the human condition where we want to find this ending to everything. And I think the ending is such a dangerous thing to think about. The ending is what religious fundamentalists think about that causes them to search for ways to initiate violence. The ending is a really dangerous fucking thing. We shouldn't be thinking about the ending. We should be thinking about what are we doing currently. And I think that good spirituality does encourage us to think of what's happening now and to do good things now. I think that oftentimes bad spirituality is when we're thinking of, well, am I going to get into heaven? Like, that's not a great thing to think about. You should be, you know... I'm not religious. I know I've already conveyed this, but I do think that like a big part of like my Jewish upbringing, constantly like thinking about tzedakah, which is uh, charity, constantly thinking about like the four sons at Passover, which would be the wise son, the evil son, the simple son, and the son who doesn't know how to ask, which are all parables. These things encourage me to go out and volunteer uh, to, to help people who are less fortunate than me. I don't believe in God. I don't give a fuck if God exists. I do it because I want their lives to suck less. And that's, that is something that I've taken with me through that. Something that actually manifests here and now instead of like, well, am I going to get into heaven because I volunteered? I don't even believe in heaven. So I don't know. I know that's like a ridiculous tirade, but it is just one of those things that, that comes up for me all the time. Like, especially when I'm talking to like the ANCAPs on the other episode. If only we did this, we would have a perfect society for the rest of time. No, we fucking wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's not how it fucking works. Like, you cannot... <laughs> you, we're know? Never done. Like, you know who really opened my eyes? It was Cosper. Cosper said it a few times. Like, you're always becoming. You're never done. Like, you were always in the process. Even just as an individual, you're always in the process of becoming. And I'm sure yeah. it's not what they meant by that. I'm sure I'm totally misinterpreting it. But still, it just made me go in that direction. Like, oh, there's never a fucking ending for a person or for humanity. It's just always ongoing. And that's why Francis Fugam was so fucking dumb. And that's why capitalists <laughs> were wrong. Like, like you said, David, what you got? Sorry. Yeah. So, so just to be clear, what I was referring to is Buddhism does actually posit an end point to, you know, hatred and greed and delusion, which is the experience of enlightenment. So what I was referring to specifically is if you look back in the Buddhist texts in the Buddhist day, he had a Sangha, a Buddhist community, hundreds of thousands strong among whom it is said in the text, thousands of whom were enlightened. And the state of enlightenment, as it's defined in Buddhism, is the remainderless removal of greed, hatred, and delusion. So the Buddha, at his death, set up the Sangha 
the Vinaya, the monastic code, is essentially an anarchist constitution. And the idea was these people were in a position, um, and still are today, to be trusted to be humans and manage their own affairs. And so the system that the Buddha laid down with the understanding that these people have achieved this much and are at this particular point was a leaderless system. On his deathbed, he said, you know, be lights unto yourselves, follow only the truth, don't follow any other man, follow yourselves. And so to this day, the Sangha is decisions are made by consensus with a 100% quorum, you know, and according to the monastic code, it, I mean, it's set up very much anarchistically, and it's on the basis of Buddhist morals and values. So, you know, so that that's, you know, I 100% agree with you guys about there generally not being an endpoint. But I, I was specifically saying that because Buddhism does, in fact, posit an endpoint. Yeah, I also want I mean, speaking of an endpoint, I kind of wanted to ask you earlier, what is the, what would you say makes your guru your guru? This is another person that you think is a path to enlightenment for you? Oh, he, he's dead. <laughs> oh, okay. What, like, what is it about that? It's like, Jaron, back me up here. It would be much harder to, like, justify having a living guru as like a person that you know who like lives and breathes and goes to the bathroom as opposed to like someone who's dead and has produced all of the work they're going to produce and can have no more takes, however fallible they may be in the future. You know what I mean? Like for some reason I had assumed that you were talking to a living person, but I mean, who is your guru? So who is it that you're following? His name's Neem Karoli Baba. He was a, a Himalayan saint. But so this distinction though, so, so a, a real guru is a fully enlightened being. So this is not a somebody. This is, essentially divine energy in a human body. And a lot of them do not behave anything like what you would expect or what so-called self-proclaimed gurus act like. So you might have like a Ramana Maharshi who was silent for 20 years and walked around in a loincloth and people just kind of hung around in him because when you're in the presence of people at this level of spiritual development, they do something to your consciousness as well. There's kind of this energetic field. So there's the true gurus, Meher Baba was silent for the last like 40 years of his life. These are not people who are like running around in Rolls Royces and living in mansions in Beverly Hills or even in India. These are people who are basically living in caves and people kind of find them and they set themselves up around these people. And these people are not taking anything from them. They're just kind of there as these spiritual guides. And a lot of them are severe ascetics that, you know, these they live in the, the jungles, they dwell in the mountains of the Himalayas and they kind of, you know, they're fully enlightened. So there's no desire there. There's no trying to get anything from anyone. If a proclaimed guru is attaching themselves to material things, is seeming like they're trying to get anything, whether that's sexual, whether that's material or anything from anyone else, they're not there. They're they're not done yet. <laughs> so this is this is not like Bhagwan in Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> this is most certainly not like Bhagwan in Oregon. No. I mean so so when you say that, though, that's so mind-blowing to me for so many reasons. Like the fact that there are people who are on this level that they literally cannot behave like any other human would recognize. But then that still causes other people to find them, even if they go and just lock themselves away where they're not supposed to be found. People are just like, I gotta, gotta get over there and see what this cave guy is up to. Like, and they do that. Yeah, isn't that kind of indicative of humanity, though? It's like somebody's just like, I'm gonna go like do my own thing. And then other people are just like, the fuck are you doing? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> listen, if, if you don't get it, I totally respect that. Because if I listened to me the way I'm talking now four years ago, I'd be like, this guy's a fucking nut job. Shut up. But also, I mean, <laughs> it also makes me think how tragic that is. Because if you say these people are silent for decades at the end of their lives, it's like, 
to me, that just makes me think of how much of their work we're missing out on, because they must have, like, especially if you're following this person who is long dead, that must mean that you are following this person's writings or what people recorded of what this person said. So there must be some wisdom in there that makes this person your guru. And the fact that then they, or not yours in particular, but maybe any of them stayed silent for so long, it's like, Jaron, you must feel like that's a tragedy as well, right? Like, the, how, imagine how much content they could have produced. Like, I hate to say it in that way. Like, it sounds like a podcast, but still. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe they could have been on Instagram. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird for me because, like, I can perceive in my logical mind where the value comes from for a person of belief from silence, that they produce something that is more valuable than something written or something tangible, that it's beyond that. However, at the same time, I personally have not experienced that. So I can't personally find the value in it because it's, it's not something that I've been privy to. But, you know, this is part of like my great crux with religion and belief is like I choose to respect it, even though it is not my path to be on it. You know, my, the way that I open my mind is to read about people who have been forgotten. That's where I tend to find like the great feelings in my heart and head is when I'm reading about like <laughs> failed revolutions or lost indigenous cultures and things like that, which often tie into spirituality and religion. But at the same time, I haven't had the same experiences that a lot of people who are religious have had where they are just at that either bottom of the barrel and they need to find something that gives them further meaning or they, they manage to find or channel it somewhere else. It's one of these things where like, I like to rationalize it where like, we didn't know that radio frequencies existed until like pretty much a century and a half ago, but they've been around this entire time. Just because we can't measure something currently doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. If I can't disprove it, I also can't prove that it doesn't exist. So that's kind of where like my science teacher head goes with it. <laughs> Personally, yes, I would like to have a book. Yeah, my particular guru actually has no written teachings. He, he, uh, what? I, I, I've, yeah. So, like I said, he came to me through mystical experience. So that's that's the extent of it. There's collections of stories about him. If if anyone listening is familiar with Ram Das, this is also Ram Das's guru. He's a professor of um, psychiatry at Harvard with Timothy Leary, experimenting on psychedelics. I don't know if anyone knows the story, but he's big because of fucking joe rogan so i mean he no, maybe i don't listen to joe rogan yeah i mean but joe rogan like had uh who's a fucking duncan trust was like one of his bros and you know back when joe rogan was not quite the far right nut job that he is yeah i mean he will talk about ram das as like this because joe rogan is also into like fucking dmt and just like tripping and shit so they will talk about mm. that but um yeah sorry i'm interrupting continue yeah yeah no problem yeah well long before joe rogan ram das was a pretty hugely right, influential right, right. Yeah, figure in, in terms of bringing Eastern teachings to the West. And so this is also the guru that he encountered over there. And I had read Be Here Now, which is kind of Ram Dass's seminal book when I was in prison. Um, and it really spoke to me, but that's not what did it for me. What did it for me was when I was driving my car home from work and out of nowhere, a vortex of energy came up my spine and I felt something take over me and talk through my mouth. And it was this guy. So you know, like I said, you know, do with it what you will. It sounds insane. All I can tell you is this is my experience, <laughs> you know, but but that that's how, you know, I wound up with him as my guru, which also speaks to what a true guru is. The guys in Beverly Hills with the yoga studio franchise aren't doing this to people, <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, at the very least, I could say, like, it sounds weird, but I can see why it attracts people. You know what I mean? Like, you have a good message, and you're absolutely a charismatic speaker, and I can see why you were able to go to the heights of the, the Moloch Pyramid, even if that wasn't for you. And I think that, at the very least, you will be getting a lot of DMs from listeners who are more interested in, in what you have to say, because it is a good message, and I like it. And even if I'm not religious myself, or I'm not going to be converted to anarcho-spirituality, or any kind of spirituality, I would rather people come to you than someone who's going to be preaching the far-right version of religion, of course. And I think that people will tend to choose that. And I think that that side of it, especially with religion, that is welcoming as opposed to hierarchical and fascist in nature. It needs to be the, the dominant strain. I think that something that is worth noting, too, is just as, as Marxism is an evolutionary science, it's, it's that whole thing where people are like, I think you mentioned it on the ANCAP episode where <laughs> capitalists will be like, oh, well, that wasn't real capitalism, blah, blah, blah. Marxists will be like, yes, all of this was real Marxism, including the bad stuff. But yeah. that's the point is it's constantly evolving and you can learn from those mistakes. You own it, which is a really good thing. And I think that that's something that should be granted also to anarchism is, you know, the thinkers of the 19th century who came up with these philosophies of, yes, we should not have a state, all taxation is theft, blah, 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 blah. You know, these were revolutionary ideas of their time, but it's fascinating to see what's happening to anarchism now, because we have all of these offshoots, including but not limited to anarcho-spirituality, which I'm very glad that we've gotten to hear about today. The postmodern anarchist movement and the people who, who are playing around with these ideas I can only speak for myself, but I'm not anti-state. I just think that the focus on power dynamics through statist lenses is very important to maintain a state that works for people, that works to an end of mutual aid, works to an end of primarily abolition unless there are no other options. I don't inherently think that a state is bad. I think that a state is a tool, and I think that there are tons of other anarchists who are going to look at these evolving models a century and a half later and think about like, how can we examine this through a better lens of power dynamics in a way that only anarchists really can. And I think that that's the same thing that I grant to Marxists is what I would like to see granted to anarchists because yeah, we should be talking about spirituality. We can't just focus on like how many yards of linen does it take to get to God? Like, <laughs> We can't do that. It's not going to work. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have to look at all of these different intersectionalities. And I can only speak to, to my own circle of people, but I will say that like a lot of people with uteruses that I know gravitate more towards anarchism because it has that identity politic. I will say a lot of trans people that I know gravitate towards anarchism because of the identity politic. And it doesn't mean they aren't still down with the Marxist proletarian struggle. The question is, how do we bridge the gap? And that's always how I've felt, which is why I'm on an off-left podcast. <laughs> you know? Well, I did want to uh, start to move to wrap it up, but I wanted to see if, uh, David, you want to plug it? I mean, obviously, people are going to just check out Anarcho-Spirituality. Like you said, you're on the one social media. You've been posting some fucking fire memes for a long time. I'm happy to follow <laughs> you, even if I'm not an anarchist myself, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, would you like our listeners to uh, DM you and ask you some more questions about your points of view on these things? 
Do you have some good takes? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, our conversation focused more on kind of the, the theoretical, but I also want to emphasize really the practical aspect of, of anarcho-spirituality, that these two ideologies are aligned in that, you know, spirituality posits the full development of the human being, you know, and anarchism posits the free development of the human being socially rather than internally. And so the, these two run side by side. And I, I think that spirituality is very supportive of, you know, of real practice. So what I want people to really be interested in is Buddhist practices. How can I work on my greed? How can I work on my hatred? How can I be more present? How can I be more resilient? Yogic practices, you know, uh, how can I de-stress in the face of a deteriorating capitalist hellscape? How can I better equip myself to deal with the struggles of, you know, of an engaged activist lifestyle? <laughs> you know, how, how can I prepare myself in terms of psychological and spiritual resiliency? And I think that these traditions are a really great treasure trove of these stuff. Do therapy too, do other things, but you know, these are a set of tools that have stood the test of time. And so if anyone's listening and has been like, oh, well, I've been meaning to learn something about Buddhism, or I want to learn about meditation, or I want to learn how some of these tools can be helpful for me in my work or in my personal life or whatever the case may be, I'd specifically love for some of these people to reach me out so I could point you towards resources and reading materials and these kinds of things and support you in whatever it is that you're looking to get into. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's what we're all here to do. Well, shit. Thank you for coming on, man. And if you want to come back on and talk about some more of the praxis side of it, I'd be happy to have you back on. I mean, this is a great conversation. I'd love to do it again sometime. Yeah, it's good to meet you, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. I can't wait to hear myself after the theme music coming in like a WWF wrestler. That, that shit hits. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad you like it. Um, <laughs> all right, guys. Do you want to plug your website or anything, or are you still keeping that uh, kind of down the down low? Oh, me? Yeah, yeah. I need to. I need to actually take time to revamp that. But I will say my third book is is finished and it's being edited currently. So it will be released soon. It's going to be free online in PDF format and paperbacks are available for a very small fee. But I should have it back probably within about a month, oh, yeah. finally. Right. In the meantime, follow Jaron Dagan, D-A-G-A-N on Instagram because you have some pretty good shit posts and you have posted a couple screenshots I've seen of your book as you're working on it. And I really like that because uh, I like to get a sneak peek. It's pretty cool. In, in between the shit posts. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> of course. All right, well, thank you again, David. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, please come back on anytime. Yeah, thank you all, guys. Cool, I'll see you on Instagram. See, see you guys see later. You. Later, y'all.